Welcome to the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACED is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. What do you think about when you hear the words addiction recovery? What kinds of images come to your mind? Perhaps you picture a large room with chairs assembled in a circle, people standing up one at a time discussing their sobriety. Maybe you think about residential rehab facilities where people go for 90 days and come out changed. Does recovery mean total sobriety? Completely abstaining from all mood and mind-altering substances? For many, this is exactly what recovery means. But where do we get this idea? Are there other routes to recovery that don't include total abstinence? Are there ways to think about and measure recovery? So far this season, we've talked in depth about medications that treat opioid use disorder and the stigma surrounding them. Often people with substance use disorders, their families, the general public, and even those in the medical and treatment field believe that medications for opioid use disorder are simply replacing one drug for another. We heard in the podcast on the neuroscience of substance use that medications are often necessary for recovery. But while scientists combat these disorders by furthering our understanding of neuroscience, what works more often than not happens in an academic vacuum, often completely removed from the front lines of substance use disorder, treatment, and recovery. In Miriam Boeri and colleagues' 2014 article, Conceptualizing Social Recovery, Recovery Roots of Methamphetamine Users, the authors set out to understand recovery, not by starting in a lab and looking at chemical reactions in cells, but by talking with individuals with methamphetamine use disorders and exploring the different ways people navigate their recovery. We know that substance use disorders are a complex phenomenon that are influenced by a person's physiology and environment. Boerian colleagues sought to understand recovery from methamphetamine use in a way that you can't do by looking at brain scans or studying the behavior of mice. Boerian colleagues explain that there are no exact, agreed-upon definitions of recovery. Addiction can be understood as the problematic use of drugs or substances. In fact, many of the quote-unquote symptoms of a substance use disorder the way in which a substance use disorder is diagnosed, are related to the social problems a person is experiencing as a result of their substance use. And if addiction is defined by the problems in a person's life, then shouldn't recovery be related to a reduction in these problems? To that end, Boeri and colleagues proposed a definition of social recovery as the process of acquiring the skills resources, and networks needed that enhance people's ability to live in a society without resorting to problematic substance use. To better understand the phenomenon of recovery, Boeri and colleagues became familiar with local drug scenes in a suburb known to be affected by a rapid rise in methamphetamine use. They hung out for extended periods of time in places where people congregate, such as bars, coffee houses, neighborhood streets, shopping centers, public laundromats, and all-night restaurants. 
They identified specific research spots in diverse areas through the help of individuals recruited in the field who had inside knowledge of methamphetamine use in the area due to their own use or former use. They also used targeted and snowball sample methods to recruit people for interviews. A snowball method essentially means they asked people they interviewed to refer other people to them. They also posted flyers in strategic places advertising a confidential research study with a phone number and passed out their business cards. They attributed their ability to build trust and rapport with their study population to their non-judgmental attitude and acts of kindness, such as offering rides to the store. The researchers audio recorded interviews with the participants, but they also took extensive ethnographic field notes. In other words, they took systematic notes on every aspect of the experiences. Things like facial expressions, smells, body movements, and environmental factors, just to name a few. In total, Boerian colleagues interviewed 50 active and 50 former methamphetamine users. They transcribed the recorded interviews, and they used a variety of approaches to look for themes in the data. For example, they validated the data by looking for inconsistencies between the interviews and their field notes, and the drug screener they had participants complete. This is called triangulating the data. They created images like Venn diagrams from the themes they found to better understand the phenomena they were studying. Ultimately, Boeri and colleagues categorized three main routes to recovery. One, formal treatment. Two, 12-step groups. And three, natural recovery. And they counted mentions of various strategies used in those routes to recovery. These strategies include social support, focusing on a goal with action steps, avoidance, spiritual experiences, and using substitute drugs. The authors found that all individuals used more than one route and many attempted recovery multiple times. Out of the 100 participants, six were in stable recovery, meaning a recovery of at least five years. Let's talk more about each route to recovery. The formal recovery route included mandated, non-mandated, residential, and non-residential treatment. 38 individuals identified formal treatment as one of their routes. Not surprisingly, those most likely to discuss formal treatment were those who could afford to participate, had insurance, or had help from relatives. For those who used formal treatment, some identified social support from family or others in treatment, and a general focus as important strategies in their recovery. Oftentimes, staff members in treatment groups advised individuals to use avoidance as a strategy to avoid situations that may lead to relapse. Most participants who used formal treatment received it through their contact with drug court, which also provided religious and spiritual support. Because of this, religion and spirituality was an important strategy for some participants. Lastly, many respondents went to a medical detoxing facility before their treatment, making substitute drug use another strategy to recovery. The 12-step program route to recovery included any form of self-help group that followed the 12-step model. 35 individuals mentioned a 12-step program as a route to recovery. A highly important strategy for this route was social support, as support and companionship is an, is an inherent element to 12-step programs. Other important strategies for those using a 12-step model were goal focus, avoidance, and religion or spirituality. Many individuals who used this route had a goal of becoming a leader for others in the 12-step program. 
All individuals who participated in a 12-step program avoided people and places that may lead to relapse, and many emphasized the importance of a higher power in their recovery. Lastly, no respondents discussed using substitute drugs as a strategy in their recovery while in a 12-step program, as these models discourage any drug or substance use. 36 participants discussed natural recovery routes, or any route that was not a formal treatment or 12-step program. Those who used a natural recovery approach largely attributed their recovery to self-motivation, but friends and family also acted as motivators. Those in natural recovery also used goals as a strategy, particularly finding employment, furthering their education, and volunteering. This group of individuals also used avoidance in their recovery. Avoidance in natural recovery means making a conscious decision to avoid certain people or places, rather than being instructed to do so by others. Religion and spirituality was an important strategy for natural recovery and served as a large motivation for some participants. And finally, some in the natural recovery route used substitute drug and substances as part of their natural recovery, including marijuana, tobacco, and alcohol. Six respondents in the study were in stable recovery, meaning no problems from methamphetamine use for more than five years. All reached the turning point into this status as a result of natural recovery strategies, but they also used multiple routes and strategies along the way. Two of the six fit the model of total abstinence. The other four respondents engaged in non-problematic drug or alcohol use. What this study helps to illustrate is that despite media depictions of drug use or popular understandings of recovery, recovery is not a one-size-fits-all matter. Boweri and colleagues' research shows the diverse routes and strategies to recovery that exist, and that oftentimes individuals use multiple methods multiple times before becoming successful. Because of the complex nature of recovery, Boweri and colleagues advocate for adopting a social recovery definition to better account for the many different paths an individual may take. When thinking about and researching addiction, substance use disorder, and recovery, researchers and others who are interested should seek to capture the diversity of social influences and social strategies used in all recovery routes. Doing so does not repudiate any of the current models that are working well for some, but allows us to begin investigating the power of various routes to recovery. Boweri and colleagues conclude, quote, if people wavering between drug use and sobriety were given access to more strategies for social recovery, it could reduce the number of attempts at sobriety and therefore relieve the public burden of institutionalized treatment centers and the overpopulation of incarcerated drug users, unquote. No matter your own beliefs about recovery, that's a goal we can all get behind. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews, for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind doctoral candidate, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. 
Oh wait, two more quick things. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using one of your research articles or reports for an upcoming podcast, please send it to me, Danielle, at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, please tell your friends and colleagues about us or assign this podcast to your students or staff. Thanks again, and please tune in again soon for another informative episode of the ACE Dip Podcast, Translating Science into Sense.